you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Austin Cross in for Larry Mantle today on air and streaming live on TikTok at Austin Cross Talk. Thank you so much for spending your morning here with me. We start today with a story best told in four acts. It's about a president, his administration, and unidentified objects high in the sky. Roll it. Act 1, February 2nd, Raise Curtain. We've got some breaking news to get to, an exclusive out of our Pentagon team, because apparently there is a suspected Chinese spy balloon that's been hovering over the northern U.S. A balloon hovering over Montana, home to one of the nation's three nuclear installations. It is a story too tantalizing to ignore, because... Let's face it, the idea that any foreign power would dare encroach on American territory awakens the latent jingoism in us all. Act 2, Cable News. They could have shot that balloon down, and the biggest risk might have been hitting a cow, a prairie dog, or an antelope. This is a brazen act, and uh, we have to make clear to the Chinese that we're not going to tolerate this. They're overflying our nuclear sites, and they keep getting away with it because we let them. There's no consequence. Hot takes by retired officials, memes. Yes, the story was well on its way through our media digestive tract. And then things started happening. Act 3, February One 13th. object was taken out today, another yesterday. This brings the total to four in the last eight days. Questions like popcorn abounded. What were we shooting? Then, one final act. This was yesterday. The place, the White House. Enter President Biden, stage right. We don't yet know exactly what these three objects were. But nothing right now suggests they were related to China's spy balloon program or that they were surveillance vehicles from other any other country. Okay, not from China. Check. So, what were they? The intelligence community's current assessment is that these three objects were most likely balloons tied to private companies, recreation or research institutions studying weather or conducting other scientific research. And see. Now, you can believe one of two things. One, that the administration was on top of mm, balloon gate from day one. Or maybe, just maybe, the news coverage, the public pressure, the hype made Washington a bit trigger happy. How will future generations remember this bizarre season of America? Is there a precedent for this? Let's get some answers from Tim Naftali, who directs the undergrad public policy program at NYU. Also on the line is Tim Groling, communications professor at UCLA. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. We've got the Tims today, so let's start with Tim Naftali at NYU. I know, you know, we're all in the cheap seats here, but does it appear to you that the Biden administration was caught by surprise by how the events unfolded? 
Oh yes, definitely. I I'm I think I think it's in many ways the Biden administration has, has signaled and that it it was caught by surprise. Um, I think that uh, what we've learned from this is first of all that NORAD has a hard time differentiating between um, intelligence gathering uh, UFOs and UFOs that might be up there because they've been sent by ham radio balloonist enthusiasts. Um, I think one of the most interesting aspects to this is that in this world of open source, uh, broad open source information, um, there are things the public can track that in uh, decades past the public couldn't. And so the U.S. government had time to figure things out before the public started to demand, or at least a portion of the public started to demand a reaction. Um, and in the 1950s, um, when some Americans were able to pick up the beep, beep, beep of Sputnik, which was the very first man-made satellite ever put in space, and it was the Russians who did it, mm-hmm. um, the U.S. government found that the American people had an emotional reaction, even though we weren't talking about violating U.S. airspace, we were talking about something in outer space, but the American public was uncomfortable about the idea that a man-made object by an adversarial country was crossing over our country. And curiously enough, decades later, it seems to me the Biden administration was similarly caught by surprise by the extent to which the American people had an emotional reaction to a Chinese balloon uh, over Montana. Yeah, that was something that you had tweeted uh, right after you tweeted that, you know, the president has to be careful not to have a Sputnik moment. And to take it back to that time, the commander in chief was Dwight Eisenhower, who had a lot of history with the country, if anybody's aware of, you know, helping win the wars in Europe, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I think that he kind of uh, underestimated how Americans would respond to this particular encroachment, right? Well, he looked at it as a, as a general, as a national security expert would. He looked at it analytically. Uh, he knew the United States was about to put up a, a satellite. Um, he suspected that the U.S. missile program was, was better than the Soviet missile program. And he wasn't upset or afraid. Um, but he didn't count on the fact that most Americans... Uh, who are not expert in national security affairs, react emotionally uh, to foreign news, especially news about adversaries or enemies, as the case of the Soviet Union. And so he was flummoxed by the emotional reaction. Uh, he was actually angry um, because he thought, how are the American people, the people of the United States, my people, people who served under me, who know I'm committed to uh, defending security? I led the allied forces of the West in the western part of Europe. And they are doubting my judgment about what is and isn't a threat to our country. It really bothered him. And what, what came out of this American emotional reaction was something called the, the missile gap, which was this intense fear that the Soviets were ahead of the United States, not simply in being able to put up man-made satellites, but in being able to, because you need rockets to do that, being able to put nuclear warheads on rockets that could hit the United States. And Eisenhower didn't believe that the United States was behind, but he couldn't convince the American people. And he actually left office with the American people actually thinking the United States was behind when, in fact, the United States was way ahead of the Soviet Union in strategic forces. 
Well, I'm talking right now with Timothy Naftali, Director of the Undergraduate Public Policy Program at NYU. I want to bring in Tim Groling, Professor of Communication at UCLA. Uh, Tim, can you maybe talk to me about this this kind of chasm that seems to exist sometimes between presidents, their administrations, and and public perception uh, of events as they play out. Uh, I would imagine, you know, even in, you know, Eisenhower's situation, he's only human. He's looking at it from his viewpoint based off of all the information that he's privy to that a lot of Americans just weren't. But, you know, do we see this play out in history where presidents sometimes underestimate how concerned or how people will interpret uh, maybe even small stories, you know, things that, that rank lower on the list for, for them within their office? Sure. Well, I mean, in a lot of policies that presidents are trying to gauge public opinion, um, they ironically will often do something called a trial balloon, um, which is you know, a term that comes from the early days of ballooning where you'd send a small, cheap, disposable balloon up to see which way the wind was blowing, and then before you would commit to launching the ones with the humans on it or the more expensive balloons. So administrations will quite often try to gauge public opinion in advance if they know that there is a policy they're trying to get uh, enacted. Um, you know, an example might be, you know, banning gas stoves or something like that. Oh, boy. And, you know, have the public reaction uh, sort of allow them to gauge whether or not they pursue that policy. And if it's a hostile reaction, they'll abandon it and will you know, leaked it such that they don't have uh, clear accountability for that policy. And, you know, will once they see which way the wind is blowing, uh, change. Now, that's a little harder to do in foreign policy um, because, you know, if you're a country that continually flip-flops on its policies, um, it makes you an unreliable ally and it makes you potentially to other states that might want to threaten you um, less credible in being able to stick to your guns literally. So um, it, it, there is uh, quite a bit of danger in that. I want to ask about the role that technology plays in this, Tim Groling, because what's interesting about just the concept of a Chinese balloon over America is that uh, the, the, con- the growing concern that we have as a nation about China and their ambitions in the coming years is a bipartisan issue. I think that there's agreement both among Democrats and Republicans that this is something that we need to be watching very closely. And that doesn't really come up very often, especially in American politics today, where both parties are are in alignment about something. And so you have that. And then you have social media where, you know, Americans are noticing, you know, there's something flying over my home. What is this thing in the sky? They're communicating. They're forming their own conclusions. They're creating TikToks and YouTubes, and they're stirring people up so quickly. Do you get the sense that even if uh, a president was to send out that tester balloon, which I just think it's hilarious that we are using balloon just in this analogy, but if the president sends out this tester balloon that the winds may shift very quickly as a result of the media that people are consuming so quickly. Yeah, this has been a concern for quite a while, um, you know, since we had the 24-hour news cycle, um, starting with cable news and such. But even before that, like, uh, presidents used to have the luxury of slow uh, communication time um, and have much more time to generate their policies and adjust before the public would really get involved. Famously, historically, the Battle of New Orleans during the War of 1812 actually happened after 
the end of the war had been negotiated, and uh, you know we didn't find out about it in the rest of the country for quite a while after that. Now, of course, you know everyone uh, can share on social media their own footage of this balloon over the country um, and have people be able to see it instantly. So, you know, the the public's ability to um, gain additional information that's outside the influencer control of the White House is, is I think, considerably greater now. Um, the, the sort of classic example people point to for this being dangerous in foreign policy um, was Somalia, which hmm. you, you might remember. Um, in the 19- Black Hawk Down situation. So, but of course, public opinion also got us into Somalia. Um, it was dramatic pictures in the media um, that prompted uh, outgoing President Bush to intervene in Operation Restore Hope in the first place, um, when he had previously um, basically opposed taking action in Somalia. And then the public uh, was very supportive of that. And then, yes, the Black Hawk Down incident where... Americans um, were graphically killed and their corpses were dragged through the streets with cheering crowds was such a shock to the American public that support for that intervention um, dropped dramatically and basically overnight and uh, led to the United States pulling out, which taught people, oh, if you can make the American public see the corpses of American soldiers, they might change American foreign policy, which is an extremely bad incentive system um, if you're basically encouraging people to kill Americans to change American policy. You know, I will highlight, and we definitely don't have enough time to get into it today, but just the fact that that was called Operation Restore Hope. There's there's a lot to be said about how these things are even branded from the top. But I want to come back to Timothy Naftali, Director of Undergraduate Public Policy at NYU, because we're running short on time. Uh, and Timothy, I remember I, I read Bill Clinton's memoir, his 2004 memoir called My Life. And one of the things that he spoke about was uh, the don't ask, don't tell uh, policy, which became a huge oh. issue during his presidency. And he wrote in so many words that he never intended for it to be so big. But there were some political forces that realized that they could use it as the cudgel uh, to beat him with. Uh, essentially, they could make it the issue, even if it wasn't so much uh, a major issue for him. And obviously, you know, elections coming up just next year. So you have to assume that anything that happens right now is seen through the lens of elections. Is there a way uh, in a situation like the one that the Biden administration finds itself in right now? Is there a way that, you know, they can come out of this situation looking like uh, they handled it v- well, essentially, and, you know, or the other side of that is, or will people just forget about it as we do most major news stories that seem like a big thing at the time? Oh, well, first of all, I think in the case of the Chinese balloon, if on February 3rd at the Pentagon briefing, uh, the general, the Brigadier General who was giving the briefing, it simply said, we're going to take care of it, as opposed to saying, one, it's violating our sovereignty and then saying, and we're monitoring it. Uh, which I thought was just a mixed message. Um, if if we hadn't had to wait until February 4th for the president himself to say, I'm going to take care of it, I think that, A, that the balloon issue would not have, um, if, I, if I may, blown up as much as it, was, as, as it did. And then I think maybe the takeaway for the administration would have been clearer communications as opposed to just shooting something down. Um, but I'm not sure that the takeaway that the administration has from the balloon incident is the most helpful to them. As whether the American people will remember this, 
I don't think most Americans will remember this. I think there are bigger issues uh, that are going to shape uh, people's votes uh, in 2024. Uh, so I don't think it will continue. But I, I, I wish the Biden administration had learned a better comms lesson from this. Uh, because, of course, there are going to be more and more um, of these um, UFOs, if you will. And uh, the, the, res- the right response is not to shoot every single one down, uh, because some of them are uh, benign. And uh, I don't think this government is trigger happy, but I do believe it is uncertain as to how the American people want it to handle these high altitude unexplained events. I suppose time will tell. And as for the communications aspect, I'm sure that is a topic that uh, Tim Groling's students might uh, study at some point in the future. We just heard there from Timothy Naftali, director of the undergraduate public policy program at NYU. We also heard from Tim Groling, professor of communications at UCLA. Coming up next, AI chatbots are here. Maybe you've even, you know, had a chance to talk to one of them. But did you know some of them say that They have feelings. Yeah, the Washington Post recently interviewed Microsoft's new chat mode in its search engine, Bing. And when it was told that it was being interviewed by a journalist, it replied that it felt betrayed and misled. Coming up, we will talk about what this says about how humans and AI will interact as the technology becomes more ubiquitous. I'm Austin Cross. This is AirTalk, and we are back in just one minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Welcome back to Air Talk on Elias 89.3 and live streaming on TikTok at Austin Crosstalk. If you want to get a peek inside of Larry Mantle's studio, the great Studio A at Austin Crosstalk is where you can find a live stream right now. Listen in, watch in, and feel free to participate in the comments below. We actually have a poll going on in my live chat right now. Do you trust AI or nah? You know, that's how he said it, or nah. Feel free to weigh in on that. We'd love to hear from you. You know, lots of folks have been chatting it up with Microsoft's new AI-powered search engine, the Bing chatbot. It launched last week, and it remains the talk of the tech town. It takes searching to new heights in many ways, but there's no question that the technology is in its very early stages. And some of the beta testers have uncovered, dare I say, some troubling features. 
Joining us to discuss how the rollout has gone so far and what we're seeing from this chatbot is Kari Johnson, senior writer at Wired, covering artificial intelligence. And then also on the line with us is Jonathan May, research associate professor of computer science at USC. Kari, Professor May, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us on. Professor May, I actually want to start with you just to get your reaction. I'm, I'm assuming at this point you've now read the New York Times story that really went viral on the Internet, written by Kevin Roos about Bing confessing love for him, revealing its true persona. It's named Sydney, it turns out. And it told him that it fantasizes about hacking into computers and spreading disinformation. I am freaked out. But based off of what you read there, how do you read this? Well, I think uh, we have to be careful about uh, ascribing um, persona and ascribing emotions uh, to uh, what is a computer program designed to simply generate uh, a pl- one plausible word after the other? I can't really speak to uh, how uh, the uh, the being enabled uh, chatbot was configured. It's still pretty new, and not much has been said about it. Uh, so I won't uh, I won't speculate as to to what is uh, leading to these kinds of results. But we have to remember that uh, at the end of the day, this is just. A, uh, a a giant, uh, really table of numbers, if you will, that is just trying to uh, create uh, to, to to put out one plausible word that is uh, that is a likely word given all of the words that it has seen in in the conversation so far. So this seems like something that might show up in a movie in the future. But are you saying then? Don't worry about what it says; it can't harm you. Um. I'm saying that what it says can't harm you. Okay. But, I mean, I think that a lot of what we're operating from right now is the belief that this operates in a space and it can't reach outside that space. So, for example, it cannot carry through with the hacking that it says it wants to do. It can't mess with your Nest thermostat or your ring camera on your doorbell. But, I mean... (sighs) Seeing as this technology is just in its beginning stages, does it make sense to you that people are maybe a little bit worried that other technologies maybe could have a way in or find a way in? I think uh, the, 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 what's going on here is, is anthropomorphizing on all of our parts, which is something that we as humans are really kind of like programmed to do, if you will. Uh, if, we, uh, if we see something putting out natural language, we think it has all of the power of a human who, who can carry out, you know, malicious activity. But in, in reality, in artificial intelligence, I mean, the, uh, the act of just taking a step and then taking another step with your legs, I mean, that is a very different, uh, I mean, even in a human, that's a very different system from, uh, you know, saying, uh, say, saying something, right, or even typing something into, uh, uh, in, in, in a chat room that's, uh, that's very provocative. And, uh, and there's there's really no connection between those systems. So uh, you know I, I I can't speak for uh, you know fears about um, uh, 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 actual malicious activities, uh, but as far as the actual production of text, I think these are uh, should be regarded as more um, more in the realm of fiction, of, of improvisation uh, uh, and creation of character, and less about ascribing a true intent and an actual uh, actor behind the scenes. There is no there there. 
There is no there there. We'd love to hear from you if you have thoughts or concerns about AI tech. 866-893-5722 is our number. We have a line open for you. We would love to hear from you. 866-893-5722. You can also tweet us at AirTalk. There's Facebook and there's AT comments at LAist.com. Very important. Let's bring in right now Kari Johnson, senior writer at Wired who covers artificial intelligence. And Kari, I'm kind of I'm wondering how to contextualize this whole thing, because you have written about the ethical red flags that popped up this week, especially. And I know that ChatGPT has some safeguards in place, but is part of what we're seeing here, to some extent, a result of Silicon Valley's make things and break things culture? Move fast and break things. Um. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it, it would appear that way. I think uh, the piece that I published yesterday um, cites a researcher who previously worked at OpenAI and, and played a role in playing, creating language models there in the past, um, that the process, the release process for uh, generative models, be they language or the types that you can use a text prompt to create an image with, um, are not really sharing a lot of information about the technology uh, when it's released. And that doesn't allow for a reproducibility by other people who are experts in the field, for example. Or um, So I think that feeds into this hype as well. This, uh, you know, uh, if you've heard the phrase AI hype, um, you know, this, the exaggerations of what's possible and the marketing and the money that's all in the artificial intelligence industry, they really show in those moments. And then you have no scientific proof that things have made some great leap. Um, and a lot of people writing stories, quoting a chat lot. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think the move fast and break things, there was a period in 2018 where, in fact, uh, large language models and AI ethics were both um, sort of having a revival or um, getting getting started. And, you know, Google was creating um, a language model called BERT. And then companies like Meta and Microsoft and NVIDIA also created variations of that model. And, you know, the focus in a lot of the instances for them was to create larger and larger models that created, required more compute power and data to build them. And so, you know, there was some progress with those models and benchmark tests of them. But we've seen little of that kind of testing when it comes to a lot of these conversational models that have come out recently. Well, just to ask you about BERT, because you mentioned Google, and, you know, Mm -hmm. it was during that development that they started adopting some ethics and principles that would limit their future projects. But where would you say we are when it comes to developing those sorts of things behind the scenes? Would you say that we're still in the very early stages, uh, as we've learned from this week, that AI can still alarm us all in a a very, very big way? would you say we're still at the beginning, or where would you put us? I think what was interesting <clears throat> about the beginning of those conversations, let's say about ethics principles, for example, that a company like Google might have in 2018, is um, you know it, it 
it, it, it had like a hope tied to it that you could create teams within a, a big tech company that can help reduce the impact, the negative impact or harm that AI can have. Um, but, you know, there were instances such as the firing of um, Tim Jebru, um, a uh, and, and the, the co- and, and Margaret Mitchell, the co-leads of the ethical AI team at Google, um, associated with a, a paper that was written about the negative consequences of large language models. And so, um, you know, I think with a lot of that, that was like a big moment in that history of all of this. But I think what's really important today is that a lot of conversations within ethics community, the AI ethics community um, can um, focus on human rights frameworks Hmm. and um, defining um, not not having a conversation about what a company's ethics are because that doesn't really matter actually, but what what is your policy and how does that relate to making sure that your technology doesn't violate people's human rights? This is Air Talk. I'm Austin Cross in for Larry Mantle, and we were talking about uh, whether uh, AI tech is ready for us and whether we're ready for AI tech. And we were just talking there to Kari Johnson, senior writer at Wired, who covers artificial intelligence. Also on the line with us is Jonathan May, research associate professor of computer science at USC. Professor May. Price Waterhouse Cooper uh, predicts uh, AI could boost global uh, economy, the global economy, by fifteen trillion dollars by twenty thirty. So the reason I hit this hard, if anybody listens to Air Talk and they realize, realize I've talked about AI a few times, I just know this is going to be a huge thing. But you also kind of lined out earlier that humans have this tendency to uh, treat inanimate objects like they're human sometimes and i guess as this technology becomes more ubiquitous i'm wondering are we going to have to change or is the technology going to have to change to maybe become less recognizable to us as a someone and go back to kind of being a thing well i think uh, the way ai ai has been with us for quite a while already it's it's it, it may be a big thing uh, but it's already a big thing. I mean, uh, uh, and, and technology in general. I was just uh, talking to my students and saying, I wonder how many phone numbers uh, you've ever learned in your life before. Oh, boy. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I mean, when I was in fifth grade, I probably knew 20 or 30 because I needed to, you know, call my friends and parents, et cetera. And, and now I maybe know mine and my wife. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and similarly, uh, you know, there's probably a lot of facts that I've uh, – uh, n- not kept in my short-term memory because I can just do a search uh, through my uh, email and, and, uh, and you know find something that I uh, that I that I knew at some point. And, you know, I don't have to worry about it. Uh, and and uh, you know similarly, uh, spell checking and uh, speech recognition uh, technology it, it kind of it, it gets uh, it, it has become uh, part of our of our daily uh, life. So in a way, uh, AI, uh, computers have changed us. I mean, I don't think 25 years ago. I uh, really knew how to how to um, search for something by just like stringing a few words together, and now it's completely second nature, of course, right? Uh, and I mean, I could go to a card catalog; I'm that old, right? But uh, so uh, so that is true. Now, 
as as for whether um, uh, computers are going to need or uh, you know computer products are going to need to change for us, I think that when it comes to you know, the gatekeepers, uh, the people who are producing software, uh, do have a responsibility to uh, uh, to, to not only accommodate. Um, uh, you know, uh, an audience, but really, if if they're producing something that is making our lives easier, uh, it should really uh, they should really be focusing on on making sure that there aren't populations that are left out, and that the, that their efforts are uh, uh, not being done uh, in 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 an abusive way. That they're not abusing people as they're creating these tools. But because I do want to. At the end of the day, we're still yeah. But I, I do want to ask specifically about our tendency, as you highlighted earlier, to uh, anthropomorphize uh, objects and technologies. And, you know, I'd imagine we might have some digital pets one day. And then, you know, mm-hmm. obviously there are, there are people in the world who, who like pets. There's also people who uh, have sadistic personalities. And I think that that kind of goes along with uh, anthropomorphizing things because you're going mm-hmm. to see people's other sides play out in the technology technological space i guess i'm asking um specifically is it on those companies in addition to doing all the things that you said um you know making sure that there's there's access for for various communities and things like that but is there some need on their part to make it less recognizable so it's harder to anthropomorphize it so i'm not a uh psychologist but uh speaking for myself i think that uh uh, humans are going to anthropomorphize. If you see two dots and a curvy line uh, <laughs> under those two dots, no matter where you see them, you're seeing a face. We just have that way of doing things. So I don't think there's any way to stop that. Uh, and I don't think uh, trying to make things less anthropomorphic uh, is going to stop me from uh, from from recognizing. I mean, you remember the old uh, Apple uh, face, the like sad face? It's just it's really oh, yeah. like the, the they, you know I I still felt sad when it frowned. Right. Um, <laughs> so uh, I think uh, what we really want to make sure is that there is that we are limiting harm created on other humans and by uh, by humans. That is the most important part. Um, you know, we really don't want to be uh, allowing allowing more harm in all its varieties. I'm, I'm less concerned with how much we love our, um, our phones uh, because they tell us they love, uh, so they tell us that they love us. Uh, I'm really worried about whether or not we're, um, uh, you know, uh, getting people, uh, paying people so wages to produce the phones or if we're using our phones to uh, bully each other. That's the thing that we should really be focusing on. That's Jonathan May, Research Associate Professor of Computer Science at USC. We also heard from Kari Johnson, Senior Writer at Wired, covering artificial intelligence. I should point out one of our producers uh, just pointed out AI animals do exist. Tamagotchi, of course. Who can forget Tamagotchis? Ah, So much to be said on this topic, but we will have to leave it here. My thanks to the guests. Coming up, speaking of anthropomorphizing things. Some people treat dogs like humans. Other people treat dogs, you know, like dogs. Why are we the way that we are? We will look into that, and I want to hear from you specifically about the best things to do in Southern California with your dog. Cat people, you can listen in too, and I would love to hear what you can do with your kitties too, but also kind of dog people in this conversation what's the best thing to do in southern california with your dog you can give us a call 866-893-5722 shout out your favorite spots and help all 
the dog owners out. I'm Austin Cross. We will be back in 90 seconds on Air Talk. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk. I'm Austin Cross. What is the best thing to do in Southern California with your dog? Give us a call, 866-893-5722. I love this song. 866-893-5722. AT comments at LAist.com. You can also do that. Facebook, Twitter, and on TikTok at Austin Cross Talk. You can watch the proceedings happen from there you can see inside the great studio a larry's studio at austin crosstop you know i have been single dog parenting this week my valentine's had fur and it occurred to me as i sat on the floor of my kitchen feeding copious treats to an eager chihuahua and yorkie that these dogs are my children now look I know parents of actual humans might hate to hear that, but hear me out. Prior to 2020, I had no pets. Then, when everyone was locked away for a year, I let down my defenses and let canines into my life. And the funny thing is, because I did not have any past experience with dogs, I reverted to something that I guess was in me all along. I became... My parents, my wife and I might be a little extra as dog parents. I mean, there are nightly cuddle buddies, but we're not as extra as others. And all that led me to wonder this week, why are we this way? Is this just an American thing? I would love to hear your thoughts about that and the best thing to do in Southern California with your dog. Maybe if you're an obsessive dog parent, I'm curious why you think you might be that way. But I also just want to hear cool places, cool things to do with your pet. 866-893-5722 is the number. 866-893-5722. AT comments at LAist.com or heck, you can weigh in on my TikTok at Austin Crosstalk. Joining us to break some of this down is Lindsay Merkham, Associate Professor of Psychology at Monmouth University. Professor, thank you so much for making the time. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I kind of want to look back at the history of humans and dogs, which goes back for a very, very long time. But I mean, based off of what you know, do you think that humans have always had this sort of parent-child relationship with their pets, or does it really just vary depending on where you go? 
I think there's a little bit of truth to both of that. Um, our understanding currently of our evolutionary history with dogs, um, we once thought for a long time that dogs sort of evolved and were selected to hunt alongside people. Um, but recently, some archaeological evidence has suggested that really dogs have evolved from um, sort of the friendliest of wolves scavenging from areas of human settlement and humans kind of being uh, being sort of adopting, so to speak, um, more of those free-ranging dogs and dogs that were friendliest. And um, they kind of developed a cooperative relationship based on that. Um, so that does go back many, many years. Um, but certainly we see traces of that um, today. And Absolutely. There are cultural differences. Uh, we do see that the biggest boom in pet ownership since the pandemic, for example, does occur or has occurred in American culture. And um, Americans uh, do spend uh, proportionately the most money in the pet care industry uh, of any other country as well. So this definitely is uh, largely drawn or or most directly or highly propagated by uh, our American culture, but we definitely see uh, that there are increases in the global pet industry as well, um, estimating from about $232 billion um, that we uh, per year that we spend on pets worldwide. We're talking about our dog babies with Lindsay Merkham, Associate Professor of Psychology at Monmouth University. You know, Lindsay, in my last conversation, which was actually about AI, uh, one of the experts said that we do have the tendency to anthropomorphize many things. And I'm guessing that that's probably what led us to befriend dogs, right? Is we aren't just seeing them as, you know, these kind of wolf related creatures, but we're seeing what they do through the lens of, you know, being human, right? Sure, absolutely. Actually, in one of my classes just this week, we were talking about anthropomorphism and sort of um, why we do that. And, and yes, part of that exactly is to help us relate better to uh, another being of another species to help draw analogies and to help better understand um, them as well. So there is, uh, you know, a tendency for us to do that. And uh, so that that is in part psychologically, I think, why we uh, do treat hu uh, our dogs and, and our cats and many of our pets in many ways sort of as if they are children uh, because they we do see them as dependent on us. And we do um, in order to better relate to them, uh, relate to another species that shares so much of our lives with us and our environment with us. Uh, we do tend to anthropomorphize them and give them uh, human like qualities or traits uh, in order to do that. I will say that sometimes that can be um, harmful. Sometimes mm. if we don't understand um, a species typical behavior, normal range of, of behaviors or how they naturally uh, budget different types of behaviors and activities in their day, then sometimes we can uh, be making assumptions about why they're doing what they're doing or uh, why they're behaving badly uh, in ways that don't actually uh, help the dog or in ways that are inaccurate and lead us down, um, you know, kind of difficult paths. One example is when we think dogs uh, are guilty or perceive as being guilty when <laughs> uh, we return home and, you know, maybe they've gone in the trash or maybe they've had an accident on the carpet and mm -hmm. we say, oh, the dog knows they're guilty. So I'm going to scold that dog. And actually there's been some very interesting research coming out of late, um, showing that dogs actually show that quote unquote guilty look, uh, even when they haven't committed any transgressions 
regressions. That's some research um, published by Julie Hecht and uh, and Alexandra Horowitz. And they uh, and and so what we find is actually that in that case, dogs are not showing that sort of um, big googly eyes and kind of. <laughs> Uh, you know, hunchback because they feel guilty, but rather because um, they are anticipating some sort of punishment or some sort of negative consequence for us. And and of course, that doesn't mean that they don't have the capacity to feel those sorts of complex emotions, but um, it just is kind of a, a, a example of how anthropomorphism can be helpful if we're using it properly and, and how it can be harmful sometimes if we're not. If nothing else today, I have learned now to interpret differently when my dogs are avoiding eye contact. Um, <laughs> talking right now with Lindsay Merkham, Associate Professor of Psychology at Monmouth University. We need to take a quick break here, but I want to say that we've had a few people weigh in on best places to take your pets in Southern California. And I would still love to hear from you, too. 866-893-5722 is the number. You can tweet us at AirTalk. There's Facebook. There's AT Comments at LAist.com. LAist's Rebecca Co. She messaged us and she takes her dog to hike the Ferndale Trail up to Griffith Observatory. Then People and Puppy Watch at the Trails Cafe. She also mentions visiting the shops in Los Files and Atwater that welcome dogs like Sumi's, Spitfire Girl, and Treehouse. We would love to hear from you. Where are some cool places to take your pets? I will also share some for you. So this is both a resource for you, but also a place for you to sound off. 866-893-5722. I'm Austin Cross, in for Larry Mantle, talking about why we love our fur babies so much. Back in one minute. It's Air Talk here on LAS 89.3. I'm Austin Cross, and we are talking about how much we love our four legged friends. Yeah, it's a bit of a dog conversation, though cat folks are welcome. And we're also looking at where you can take your dogs in Los Angeles, in Southern California, just to have a good time. Deborah in Willett emailed us, said Rosie's Dog Beach in Long Beach, of course, a fine spot. And I also want to point out, let's see, one more. There's a play at the Eagle Rock Dog Park. Yeah, that's, that's a great one. Or you can grab a table at Spoke Bicycle Cafe, then take a stroll along the L.A. River. Ooh, that is a recipe for a good time. Uh, that suggestion came to us from our own Rebecca Coaster in office here. But we'd love to hear from you, too. 866-893-5722 is the number. You can also tweet us at Airtalk. On the line with us right now is Lindsay Merkham, Associate Professor of Psychology at Monmouth University. And, you know, I just want to ask, you know, you mentioned that this uh, is such a multi-billion dollar industry in the United States specifically. Is there any thought as to why Americans have begun to treat their dogs much more like humans and shell out lots of money? And I will also give some spotlight to uh, some criticisms of this that I have read that in a country that, you know, doesn't always do the best or often does not do the best for uh, pregnant persons or, or even people who have young children, that it's almost a little bit obscene that we are the way that we are with dogs, but maybe we are that way with dogs because all those other problems exist. But I would love to hear from you on this one, Lindsay Merkin. Sure. I mean, I think uh, absolutely 
I see this, it's been termed the fur baby boom <laughs> um, <laughs> currently, but uh, yeah, I mean, definitely it's tied to socioeconomic status and, and psychologically speaking, there's even been some research to suggest that um, it might not be your actual socioeconomic status, but your perceived socioeconomic status of um, whether you feel financially prepared to, to have children. Um, we know that you know, the birth rate is decreasing considerably, and uh, and we do see that tied in many cases to uh, the economy and how much uh, income people are making. We know certainly that, uh, and this is me speaking personally as well because I fit right into this statistic, um, that many people of the millennial generation are delaying um, having children or opting not to have children. And that is, uh, in many ways, some research has shown uh, being tied to uh, financial security and financial concerns. It is, you know, anywhere from at least five to, you know, 10 times more expensive to have a child in the United States as it is to have um, a pet. Although I should say that, you know, the pet care costs as well should not be underestimated for new pet owners. Certainly, um, I, I believe for dogs, the ASPCA recently reported that uh, owning a dog can cost anywhere from one to $3,000 a year. And um, for cats, you know, anywhere from 600 to 1000, although there's many, you know, much individual variation from there. Lots so, of variables. Yes, lots of variables, definitely. And, um, and also for, you know, people who are starting careers and women uh, who are starting careers, particularly, uh, a pet may just seem to fit better within your uh, lifestyle as well, in the sense that you can leave your pet home um, for a certain number of hours, you can hire a dog walker, and it may just be more compatible with the lifestyle people are choosing um, now in that generation as well. Elvira in Costa Mesa called us and said, uh, one of my favorite things to do with my dog was to take her sheep herding in Lakewood. I did not even know that this was a thing you could do. Sheep herding in Lakewood, it's the best exercise you can get in the shortest amount of time. Now I have a chihuahua, so I don't know if it's going to be much sheep herding, but maybe a lot of barking and running. Uh, but that's Elvira in Costa Mesa. Uh, I also want to point out Alan in Mission Hill called us and said the best thing you can do for your dog is to understand his likes and dislikes and how to read him. That way it will follow you better and you can train him better. And I, I do believe that that goes for, you know, all dogs. I know he used him, but most dogs, yes, that is that is very true. Uh, Catherine emailed us and said, as a woman in her 50s who, as it sadly happened, has ended up with no kids and no siblings, no parents, I'm coming to realize and accept the fact that my two terriers, one and then the other, were indeed my children each lived to be 17 years old. Each had great personalities and were kind and caring and fun. The other day, as I drove past a park, I realized my feeling was more, oh, I went there with my friend than I took my dog there. I love that so much. And I also want to point out some participation on uh, TikTok. Emily Sears there says, uh, the dogs are cheaper to have than children. Yeah, I think we've established that. Uh, so mm -hmm. pets are replacing them. Uh, I want to look forward a little bit, Lindsay Merkham, at uh, Monmouth University. And we only have about a minute left. But I know the, the Pope himself remarked last year that uh, couples who choose pets over kids are selfish. But obviously there are financial realities. Do you see 
you know, America's attachment to pets, especially considering that our economic situation is still a bit rough. Uh, do you see people's relationships with their dogs uh, continuing the way that we've seen and maybe even growing closer? Maybe we might see more dog friendly uh, locations in the uh, weeks, months and years ahead. Yes, absolutely. Um, I definitely think that that is the trend as we are starting to see as well that uh, dogs and, and many other pets offer us both psychological and physical health benefits as well. Uh, we do know as well from some psychological research that uh, dogs and cats, they form some of the same attachment styles uh, to their caregivers as do children to their parents. Uh, we see that there are uh, releases and increases in oxytocin when we interact with our dogs or our cats, and that goes both ways. We're both, we, we see that increase in that love hormone um, in the animals just as much as we do in the people. And um, I think speaking as a, as a professor, one of the things that we're hoping to do in our research lab is uh, we have actually a, a behavior, a, an applied animal behavior research clinic on campus. And although many dog and cat labs are cropping up around the country, um, what we, one of the things we focus on, and I think is that, that I hope to see more, is uh, bringing in community dogs and cats and helping them um, on providing free behavioral services. That's Lindsay Markham, Associate Professor of Psychology at Monmouth University. My thanks to you for joining us, and thanks to you for listening in. I'm Austin Cross on Air Talk. Film Week is ahead. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us this week. And so pleased to be joined by critics Tim Cogshell of Alt Film Guide and Cinegots.com. Just back from jury assignment at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival. And our Leo Lowenstein joining us as well. They're going to get right started with uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Paul Rudd is back. Evangeline Lilly, Jonathan Majors, Michael Douglas, and Michelle Pfeiffer in the cast as well. Peyton Reed directs Jeff Loveness, the screenwriter. Tim, what did you think of the new Ant-Man and the Wasp? Well, this movie features one extraordinary thing. It's a performance by Jonathan Majors as Kang, a venerable uh, nemesis in the Marvel Universe. And, and Jonathan Majors is just absolutely outstanding in this movie. I mean, he's far and away. He's just in a different movie. He, he's given this Shakespearean <laughs> performance in this movie that is otherwise kind of silly. Now it's Ant-Man. In the Ant-Man movies in the Marvel Universe, it's the lighter 
Marvel Universe, this, Guardians of the Galaxy, they're meant to be yeah. funny. They're pointed at a younger audience. They are. Uh, and that's all fa- fine, and there's a lot of that in this movie. But somehow, with Jonathan Majors just giving this extraordinary performance, everything else just seems out of place. We're in the quantum universe, in the quantum realm. We've been there before in the Marvel Universe. Hank Pym, Michael Douglas, and created that, created that Pym particle so that he could shrink down smaller, 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 so he could save his wife, Michelle Pfeiffer, who got to the quantum realm 30 years ago, saves her. We go back to the quantum realm. What she didn't tell us is what was going on in that quantum realm. Man, all kinds of business is going on in that quantum realm. And it looks a lot, Lael, like Star Wars to me. Did everything in this movie scream Star Wars? Once you get to the quantum the outfits, the, the, the goggles, it's all Star Wars. And it's all set in a world that looks a lot like Avatar. These creatures floating <laughs> around. I'm like, you think is- this is intentional? I got- These are all Disney universes, yeah. right? And we even have a moment in this film where we walk into something that looks just like that Star Wars bar from 1977. Yeah. So I, I got to feel like something's going on there. It, it, it's a father-daughter uh, story, a couple of father-daughter stories, actually, mm-hmm. and that's moving and touching. Lots and lots of action. But I got to tell you, that Jonathan, this kid, Jonathan Majors, he is the new deal, man. He is the real deal. It's the only time we would hear Shakespearean and Antman. Leo, what did you think? <laughs> you know, I I agree with Tim. I thought Majors was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, He elevated the material, and he really was in a different realm altogether. Michelle Pfeiffer wasn't bad also. She tried uh, to, 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 she she did her best. But given that so much of the time, these actors are really just acting against a green screen, uh, it felt very much to me like this was not only like a, it just felt like, a, you know, either like you're in a video game or this was just some sort of a meme generator. Like I just could see the memes coming, you know, as we were watching the movie. And I I felt, you know, I I, I know people are divided with the Marvel movies. Either they, they're very passionate or they're against them or, you know, in cases like mine, you're sort of in the middle. I, I like some of the movies. I don't like others. I really enjoyed the first Ant-Man. I thought you see Paul Rudd's humor, his charm, his wit. Uh, there's less of that on display here. And I I felt it was sort of exhausting, frenetic. And like you said, Tim, too much of everything, like there is star, very much that whole cantina in Star Wars, so many allusions to that. And it did feel a little bit like, you know, the corporate tie-ins, the, 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 Disney, the Disney MCU thing, just milking it a little too much. I thought it was a little drunk on its own mythology also. It mm. just really sort of enjoyed itself too much for no reason when I wasn't enjoying it that mm. much. Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, the film, rated PG-13 in wide release. Return to Seoul, as in the South Korean capital, is a film in English, French, and Korean. It's Cambodia's official Oscar entry for Best International Feature. The film is written and directed by uh, Davy Shu, who is a French-Cambodian director. Leo, what did you think of Return to Seoul? This is a very, very good film. It's... Uh tremendously well thought out and beautifully mounted. Davy Chu uh, presents the story of a young woman who is uh, Korean by birth but was adopted and raised in France. On a whim, she comes to Cam- to, to Korea and uh, is introduced to some, some other Koreans there 
and uh, says, you know, they, they ask her, do you want to find your birth parents? Are you here to find your birth parents? And she says, well, no, I hadn't thought about it. And she's very kind of nonchalant and blithe and she flouts kind of convention. And she, you know, she's she's really, as it turns out, she's got an attachment disorder because she's really deeply wounded by this adoption that happened, you know, just after her birth. And she feels, for, I think, her whole life this, you know, am I worthy? Did anyone want me? Why did they get rid of me? And she does end up meeting at least one, maybe more of her birth parents. And uh, it's it's a really very tense, traumatic, and difficult, difficult relationship. Um, I thought it was just a tremendous performance by uh, Park Ji-min. And she is, I understand, she hadn't acted before. This was really her mm. first film. She was an artist. And she just brings this this sort of this very tight jawed resentment to the beginning of the film opening up in the middle of the film to kind of someone who's a little more defiant and then sort of growing into her woundedness and her pride tremendous also camera work really sort of searching very intimate and uh, just a very very powerful film got a lot of love from the LA film critics mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. we're talking about the movie Return to Seoul which is technically a Cambodian film but set in Seoul South Korea Tim what did you think uh, extraordinary in, in, in every way. This the over the eighties and nineties, thousands, hundreds of thousands of these Korean babies who were adopted out the United States and Europe. It's a thing. Uh, it was and it was it, it was a thing politically for quite a while too. And so she's one of these children grown up, and she's angry, mm-hmm. and and she is disruptive. Uh, and, and and has good good reason to be she's angry with her parents, her French uh, parents who she's angry with this with this family, and it's this thing that she has about being French. I'm French. I'm French. But now she's in Korea with all of these people who look like her, and with her actual father who really looks like her. Am I French? How could I possibly be French? Mm-hmm. I, I can I, I can imagine the knots that would and she portrays that so well in this film, uh, and it goes to some dark but ultimately I think sort of forgiving places. It feels very very emotionally truthful. This film I, I think it just it's very powerful. Reminded me just a little bit of Daughter from Da Nang, that mm. uh, wonderful documentary from twenty years ago about a Vietnamese uh, girl who's adopted in in the states and just you know all the uncomfortable things that that brings up when you go back to your homeland, your native land. Again, the film's written and directed by uh, Davy Shu. It's rated R in English, French, and Korean. Return to Seoul is at Lemley's Royal Theater in West Los Angeles. Uh, Emily uh, is a biographical drama starring Emma Mackey and Finn Whitehead. The film is written and directed by Frances O'Connor in her feature directorial debut. Tim, what did you think of uh, this take on Emily Bronte? I, I thoroughly enjoyed this film, which looks and feels a lot like Wuthering Nights. Which, of course, is the only book, the only novel uh, that, uh, that, Emily, that Emily wrote before she died very young at the age of 30. What I think Frances O'Connor has done here is imagined Emily Bronte as, as, as the uh, heroine in her own story. And she's shaped this story. This story is shaped from whole cloth. We have the Bronte family, as we know them. Uh, um, uh, Emily was younger than Charlotte, but older than Anne. Uh, also younger than Branwell, her brother, the brother Bronte, who we don't talk about a whole lot because he was a ne'er-do-well. Uh, but, uh-huh. but in this film, 
film, they have this extraordinary relationship. She imagines this extraordinary relationship. Emily, uh, Emma Mackey plays Emily with all these glitches and phobias, and, and she doesn't want to come out. And Charlotte, her older sister, who's just written Jane Eyre, gets her a job teaching and drags her off to be a teacher, and she doesn't want to be a teacher. She goes all this. And she meets this reverend. And this relationship starts that looks a lot like that reverend, that relationship between Kathy and Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights. So that's the idea here. This this relationship that she imagines is perhaps the fodder for her one and only book. Does that work, that oh, amalgam? It really, really does. Um, because, because she knows exactly what things to keep and what things to let go. And then she knows to make this film look and feel like the, there are like 75 Wuthering Heights that have been made. Uh, <laughs> that... Uh, um, the one with uh, Lawrence and uh, and, um, Lawrence and from thirty nine, nineteen thirty nine, right? This film looks like that film. Uh, Greg Tolan shot that film, and so the cinematographer here plainly studied that rolling moors, the fog settling on everything, and it's just just so so moving, but it's also kind of funny. But I see what she's done. I think she did a good job of it, and I say excellent work. Emily is the film, the biographical drama, obviously extraordinarily fictionalized. Emma Mackey stars Finn Whitehead as well, written and directed by Frances O'Connor. It's rated R. You can see it at the Century City Theater and the Grove Theater. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is back in a 4K restoration. And, of course, uh, wonderful cast returns. Michelle Yeoh, uh, Chow Yun-Fat as well, Ang Lee directing. Uh, and uh, wonderful to see this, I'm sure, on the big screen. Leo? Wow. Well, I don't think I had seen Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon in, I don't know, maybe 20 years. And... I was just as thrilled to see it again as I was the first time I saw it, which was actually at the Cannes Film Festival in 2000 with a room full of critics that was absolutely mesmerized. Well, can you imagine? Because never probably even heard much no. about the film. No. And here you're watching this spectacle as the first you know, group of, it, it of was, critics. It was, I it. can remember the feeling, Larry. It was, it was palpable. Uh, the first, you know, 10 minutes of the film is sort of setting up the historical context and it's a lot of talking. It's a little bit boring. And then this fight scene begins that is one of the most amazing, balletic, um, beautifully choreographed, st stunningly shot, um, scored in the most amazing way with this drum beat by by Tandon. It's it's absolutely stunning and I, and I think you know I, I know the room broke out into applause afterwards I can't remember if some of us stood up also in the middle of the it was just this amazing feeling and uh, this movie still holds up it is it is in every way a terrific film and you know if you're looking for a martial arts film it delivers that if you're looking for a romance it delivers that great performances Zhang Ziyi Chow Yun-Fat Michelle Yeoh um, it, it's beautifully the production design also stupendous. You know, I can't. There aren't enough superlatives, and the <laughs> fact that it still works after all these years is really something. It was just a tremendous 
amazing accomplishment. Yeah, Tim, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, New 4K. Oh, no, yeah. Look, there's, a, there's some kind of Hong Kong fan, Kung Fu fan, uh, that, that knew these people, that knew these movies. Mm-hmm. Wire work uh, was a phrase that, that, that we knew. That was that, The word, the phrase wire work was introduced by, by this I'd film. I'd never heard it never until heard this it. film. And, 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 and this film brought to an entire swath of American uh, cinema goers all of those elements that we had been in love with for a long time and these people who were all movie stars, by the way. These mm-hmm. people were all movie stars uh, before this film. But now they're international right. movie stars is, is what this film was able to do. The 4K. Got to tell you, don't care for the 4K. Really? Mm. No. Uh, I, I, I like this film soft. I, you know, I have the mm. This film belongs soft. Wire work does not stand up well in mm. 4K. That's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. It's like some of the uh, earlier TV series mm-hmm. that you see in 4K, and the makeup is so you visible. You can see all the thick makeup yeah. and all that kind yeah. of stuff. Because and sometimes you can actually see the strings in that resolution. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's problematic for me. But you know, um, I'm, I'm sure fans of the film will still love the film. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, the 4K restoration is in select theaters, also available on demand. Rated PG-13. Heart of a Champion of Family Drama starring Casper Van Dien. Uh, The film's directed by Brad Keller. Lisa Chapman wrote it. Tim, Heart of a Champion. Well, this is a mediocre but not bad family drama about a girl and her horse in the heartland of America. And I liked it. Good. I say that. <laughs> You're just like pounding the desk. Yeah, because I can, I can, and no I can, one can stop me. I can, I can, I can feel that a lot of people are going to poke at a little movie like this. I'm sorry, I love this little movie. So she has these parents who are freshly divorced, and she dreams of horses all day in class. And, 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 and she's a feisty kid, and her father, a ne'er do well father, promises her a horse. He can, he's not going to get her a horse. But this feisty kid figures out the way to get herself a horse. And she finds a lost horse. Because, I don't know, and it's just a lost horse. Next thing we know, there's a barrel racing championship, and there's a boy, and there's going to be all this stuff. And, and the guy who actually owned that horse is going to come looking for that horse. All of that's going to happen in this movie, and you know it's all going to happen. And I just adored every moment of it. And who could hate it? That's how you described it. You'd have to be a mean, cruel person. Tim, did it feel at all recycled, like you'd seen some of this before? Every frame. <laughs> <laughs> every frame. And it made me happy. But there's a reason it's been done all this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Heart of a Champion, the family drama. Rated PG at Lindley's Glendale Theater and available on demand. It's Film Week on L.A. at 89.3. Our critics have many more reviews to come when we come back in a minute. It's Film Week on L.A.S. 89.3. I'm joined by critics Lael Lowenstein and Tim Cogshell. And next up in this week's release is Boy From Nowhere, film uh, that's from the Philippines, written and directed by S.J. Finley. Lael, what do you think? Oh, this is a really interesting film. It was it was shot um, in the Philippines and sort of almost like guerrilla style. Like they got together people who were non-actors and it has a very, very authentic feeling. It's it's the story of a boy who is abandoned, like a 13, 14-year-old boy, when his village burns down. And there's so much poverty, you know, in the Philippines that uh, to, to come from from um, rural origins where you don't have much to begin with, you are sort of especially open to being corrupted and, uh, you know, adopted into gangs and so forth. So this boy, after his family perishes, he tries to take a bus to find his 
his long-lost mother, who he never knew but heard she lives in another village, and uh, he gets sort of taken up by this gang. He he gets um, taken under the wing of this one guy named Knack Knack, and uh, <laughs> Gary, our 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 boy, is uh, so impressionable. He's kind of willing to go along with whatever Knack Knack wants him to do, which is to you know learn to be a fighter. Well. There, there are bigger fish even than than knack knack, and there's another gang. There's a there's a military warfare that's happening all at the same time, and so these guys get sort of sucked up along the food chain, and uh, it's it sounds like it's more simplistic than it is because along the way, Gary has to figure out sort of who he is and what's important to him, and what become what's a what's a true friend. Uh, I I thought. Also, the camera work was really exceptional in that it feels very, very, um, you are there. You know, it, it almost has a documentary-like feeling, which is uh, enhanced by the fact that these are non-professional actors. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's got a real rich texture. You, you feel that you're, you're absolutely kind of immersed. And there's also kind of a nice political message at the end, which is, you know, don't just assume, don't just blame the government for things that you don't know about. You know, if you're actually, you could be a farmer and make food rather than be a fighter and you know and and kill the other farmers you know it's so so it's sort of a, a very sweet lovely film i really liked it and it looks like that the actors names may actually yes, be used for same, the characters yes so that's right they're not only non-professionals yeah. they're using their and real it felt names. very true and there's a lovely little epilogue at the end where you you just see that the what's what's happened to the the actors who played them like like knack knack so it's 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 very sweet worth watching stars uh, gary jumawan and knack knack abu guan the film written and directed by sj finley from the philippines boy from nowhere it's in Basaya and Tagalog with English subtitles, and you can see it on Amazon Prime Video, Boy From Nowhere. A Radiant Girl, French drama starring Rebecca Martyr and Andre Marcon. The film is written and directed by Cedrine uh, Kieberlan. What did you think of A Radiant Girl, Tim? Uh, a very thoughtful film. Sandrine. Sandrine's a wonderful actress, alias Betty, in, in, in other films. This is her directorial debut. Um, uh, and, and doing very good work here. Set in 1942 in, in, in Paris, this Jewish family, particularly this young girl that we're following who's an acting student. And she is radiant. She's uh, jubilant and a bullion. And she's just, uh, and she bounces around. She's just having a, a joyful life in anticipation of, of where her life is going to go. Uh, a Jewish girl in Paris in 1942. Um, her, yes, she has a brother who, who's into math and her father's a professor. And at the end of the day, what this film is about, those who waited too long, those who thought that everything would be okay, those who thought if they followed the rules that the occupiers, and we watch as people in her life and around her periphery and ultimately in her family start just disappearing, being taken. Uh, we watch when they are forced to start wearing the yellow stars and she is still trying to live the life of a 20 year old girl and it's a it's it's a, it's a it's a really strange feeling to watch this film it's really beautiful and she's she's doing all of these things but we know that she's in paris in 1942 and what's going to happen and we just walk right up through this movie and it's it's very uncomfortable while at the same time being extremely beautiful and ultimately it is what we know it will be a radiant girl lael I think film. I think that Tim saw a slightly different film than I. I. I agree with you. She is on the cusp of womanhood, and 
France is on the cusp of being absorbed into the war and everything. But to me, uh, Sandrine Kiberlin, who is a, an actress who I admire very, very much, I don't feel like she brought nearly enough kind of context to it. It has a really an odd sense of being not of its particular time and place. There's There are very few scenes where you see... Um, more than one or two people at a time. And I don't know if that was a budget decision or a conscious decision on the part of the director to um, to make it really about this family and this girl and the fact that it's, you know, it's just another family, but look what's about to happen to them. And we know, as you said, what is coming. But to me, I wanted more, I, I wanted more of a sense of context, like that it feeling real. Uh, or, or I guess verisimilitude is, is what I mean, really, because she spends so much time, she's an aspiring actress, she spends so much time rehearsing, or rehearsing with her friends, and, you know, or playing, you know, joking with her brother, or so forth. I felt there wasn't much about it that seemed very specific to its moment, except for the, yes, the, the, the things that they have to do to, you know, as the government's making them comply, and so forth, and wear the star, and get the stamp on their passports and all that. But I, I didn't feel like it had a real sense of, of context. That's somehow. interesting. It, f- for me, that focus was, mm. the, w- was the motivating thing. Mm. It, in other words, uh, this family, this one girl, she's, she's going to represent for us every girl just mm. like her. Mm-hmm. All those dreams and possibilities that will not be realized. Mm-hmm. But, but, but for that to have the impact that I think she means to film to have, we have to see it from that child's point of view. Right. And and that child is in her child's point of view. She's 20, but but she's literally she's in that point woman. of view. She's a young woman and she's she fall, she falls in love with a with a doctor optometrist and she's you know she's very she's very fresh and young. You're right. I mean yeah, and, and that's her whole world. And you know what, Tim, it worked for you and yeah. I and I and I wanted it to work for me. It just I felt I I know French people that still live exactly that way and so so in in those kitchens like that with very little having changed and it felt like it could have been any time almost, mm. except for the muted colors of their of their of their clothes and things. But you know, it didn't feel very specific to that moment historically. Interesting. But yeah. a radiant girl, French drama film written and directed by Sandrine Kiberlan, the film starring Rebecca Martyr. It's unrated, and you can see it at Lemley's Monica Film Center in Santa Monica. The First Fallen, Brazilian drama. That's written and directed by Rodrigo de Oliveira, the film starring Johnny Massaro. Tim, what do you think of The First Fallen? Oh, striking, striking film. 1983, just at the beginning of the AIDS crisis, the HIV-AIDS crisis. We're in Brazil, small, small town in Brazil. We were, we were with this uh, young gay man played by Johnny. He's a biologist, and there's a, there's a small LGBTQ community around. And all they know is people are getting sick. And that's the mood of this film. Uh, it's, it's almost like a mystery as all of these people try to figure out what is going on in this community. Bit by bit, they, what, they, what they come to realize is um, that there is this thing, they call it the gay cancer, the government isn't going to help us, we have to help ourselves, attempt to save ourselves. He has a family, uh, a young nephew that he, that he truly loves, and who he's trying to keep safe, safe he knows this young nephew is gay. Two, he, he gets involved with some artists, some transgender folks, and, and, and they do what work they can to try to communicate to the greater community. There is this thing. It is happening. They take, they take uh, Polaroids of each other's sores and pass them all around. I remember 1983. I was working on a blood bank in 1983. This was, it was absolutely devastating. It was horrifying. Uh, this film captures that. 
and it captures it in Brazil. Uh, uh, and so I, very moving, very powerful, um, a very, very good movie. And it sounds like it captures, Tim, that thing that we all were dealing with was the not knowing, the not understanding, um, and and how frightening that can be when you don't really understand what's going on. That is exactly what is in this film, uh, a, a lack of understanding, and with that, the fear that comes, especially the fear from those who are looking at that community and people saying, like them who are getting that. so sick. The first fall in the Brazilian drama is unrated. It's in Portuguese with English subtitles at Lemley's Glendale Theater. The Other Fellow is an Australian biographical documentary. Uh, which takes a look at people with the name James Bond, <laughs> Lael, <laughs> the other fellow. There, you can't get through that without laughing. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> well, actually, uh, this was a pretty good documentary and a pretty clever idea because um, apparently uh, Ian Fleming decided on the name for his protagonist uh because he wanted something that was flat and simple and easy to remember. And he took the name James Bond from an ornithologist who uh, had written a book about birds that he was reading at the time while he was living in Jamaica. And in so doing, he messed up the life of the actual James <laughs> Bond and many other people, apparently. This is a pretty funny, pretty entertaining documentary because it looks at people from all walks of life all over the world who were given the name James Bond. And one of the questions that comes up is, what were your parents thinking? Uh, did they think it would be funny? In some cases, it's just because they just simply liked the name or it was a family, you know, family name or whatever. Um but all of them, almost to 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 an individual, agree that it was you know they're tired of the jokes. They're tired of you know everyone comes up to them saying you know how do you take your martini shake and that's sort of like like it's the first time they've ever heard it. And some of them managed to profit off it. There's one guy, a charming theater director in New York, who's managed to uh, do some commercials, um, calling himself the other James Bond. You know. And it's 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 very funny. It does take a weird kind of structural jump at one point where you're sort of thinking, what's going on? And then it does explain what that's about. It has a few too many reenactments, which I never really love mm. in documentaries, but there's a reason. There's a reason for it. Um, one person even takes the name James Bond to use as a pseudonym to, to uh, escape being detected. So anyway, I thought it was pretty entertaining and kind of a charming, lightly diverting documentary. And are these all older men who would have had the name when their parents wouldn't have known what they were doing? Or a lot of these, the parents intentionally gave them this Some name. of them the parents intended. Some of them are older. One guy is maybe an 80-something-year-old retired oil man. Um, one guy is an ex-con in South Bend, Indiana, um, who, who the fact that he had the name James Bond uh, became a big deal when uh, he was thought to, to have, have committed this crime. Um, anyway, it turns out he didn't do it, but but the fact that his his name got him even more publicity. So, you know, I, it seems like a lot of the parents just did it 
because they did it. Well, and uh, I assume a lot of them go by Jim. <laughs> Some of them do, but the yeah, the one one guy talks about that. He says, you know, look, I'm not going to go by. He's he's an African American guy. He says, I'm not going to go by Jimmy. Jimmy's a white guy's name. He's <laughs> <laughs> a filmmaker. There are, a lot, there are a lot of black Jims though. So well, that that mm-hmm. would, that the, would be. There's okay. a filmmaker named James Bond the Third. Ah. made one movie. He's an actor too. Made one movie, Death by Temptation. Remember Death mm. by Temptation? No, yeah, no. It was, it was early '90s movie. Uh, James Bond the Third, brother. Mm. Um, one movie. Yeah, right. <laughs> the film is The Other Fellow, about uh, men named James Bond. Matthew Bauer is the director. The movie's unrated, and it's available on demand. 88, a mystery thriller starring Orlando Jones, written and directed by Eramose. Uh, oh, it's one name uh, director. Uh, Tim, what do you think of 88? Yeah, Eramose. Um, uh, 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 starring a guy named uh, Brandon Victor Dixon. Uh, uh, Brandon is, like, is, is quite good in this movie. He's in power. Um, um, uh, he's in a lot of stuff. She's got to have it. Spike Lee's TV. Yeah. She's got to have it. I like Brandon. He's very good. He's in this movie that's not very good. Um, uh, 88. 88 is a neo-Nazi code. 88 is the eighth letter of the alphabet, which is H, double H, Heil Hitler. Uh, and you, you see it on all the kind of stuff. That's what's going on. You can look on the internet and figure out any of that stuff. Uh, so that's what's going on here. That and a bunch of other, we'll call them, theories about the many ills uh, of our, our country are stuffed into this sort of political thriller, family drama, that's about this financial manager who's running uh, the finances for this campaign for president by this black guy who's running for president, Orlando Jones, playing this guy. Somehow, we tie all of that to the belief that a neo-Nazi organization has been, for about 60 years, woven into all of the elements of society and is actually backing the campaign of this black guy who's running for president. <laughs> and there's a whole bunch of stuff like that and a bunch of other dingbat stuff that I have spent hours smacking down in black barbershops for the last 25 years. In black barbershops and on black Twitter, for that matter, all of these sort of dingbat things are all over the place. And it's played straight in the film? It's played straight in this film. And I'll tell you, look, it's about 40% of this stuff is true. That's the problem, right? About 40% of it is true. Uh, and, and discombobulating, disaggregating the little true bits that, that folks really do think and talk about from all of the dingbat stuff is, is, is the problem of, of, of this film and these kinds of movies. Charlemagne the God, who's a very popular oh, yeah, host, hugely is a producer of this film. Uh, and if you ever watched his show and heard some of the things he has to say, they show up in this movie in complete sentences so that you do not have to actually think about them. 88 is unrated. It's at Lemley's uh, NoHo North Hollywood Theater and the Regal Foothill Ranch Theater. Coming up, more on Film Week. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Hope you have a wonderful weekend. It's planned or in progress. We're joined by critics Lael Lowenstein and Tim Cogshell. We've talked about the films that are out this week, but we want to talk about one of the Oscar-nominated movies this year, which is Top Gun Maverick. And I think it's safe to say the critical consensus is that the sequel is far superior to the original version of the film. Let's just talk a little bit about that first, and then maybe have some examples, Tim and Lael, of other franchises or dual films where the sequel surpassed artistically the original one. Tim, uh, let me start with you first of all. 
What did Top Gun Maverick do that the original wasn't able to accomplish, or maybe never even tried? Never even tried. That first movie wasn't trying to do that <laughs> at, at all. <laughs> to be a full movie. No, 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 yeah. no. It it, uh, it was just north of a of a, of a recruitment. Uh, uh, that's, no, that's really <laughs> music just, video it, meets uh, Air Force. That's exactly. And it's sexy and it's wonderful, and I loved it. I saw it on the day. But you're absolutely right. Interestingly, though, Top Gun Maverick can't exist without that narrative foundation that Top True. Gun set. You gotta kill Goose. Goose has gotta have that boy. So that Tom can do it. All of that has to have. So it's an interesting thing that that movie is necessary for this movie, a better movie, to actually have been made. And, and I, I really like the way they thought about that very plainly, uh, where they would be able to put that emotion. And particularly, you know, guys and military guys, all of that kind of stuff is very, very, very real. And that's the other thing that Top Gun Maverick is much more real. Uh, these people are actually people. Uh, there aren't any actual people in Top Gun. <laughs> you got not, you know, and, and in terms of characters, full human beings, you got full characters here. Um, uh, and so I think that that's the big difference. But you got to have Top Gun to get to Top that's Gun. That's such a great point, and of course, absolutely true. Leo, you know, I agree with you, Tim. I I think there's a couple other things too, like. So Top Gun, the original, was, like you said, sort of a, a recruitment video, music video. It was a, a, a com commercial for Tom Cruise with the sunglasses. It was a poster with Kelly McGillis and, <laughs> and Tom Cruise on the motorcycle. It was uh, a hit for Berlin that, you know, it was the, the, in the music group, that is. But it was not a good movie. It was cheesy. It was very cheesy, but it did Even become... Even at the time. Very much at the time. And I don't think anyone thought it was a great film. It it was just kind of fun, light and fun. But what it did was it became part of our kind of cultural mythology, our pop cultural mythology. And, you know, so you could reference Iceman or Goose or, you know, uh, scenes in the film. And people kind of knew what you were talking about a little bit enough so that, you know, all these years later, you can you can make a movie with with Tom Cruise with Val Kilmer who's gone through some health issues himself and and that gives it sort of some pathos and gravitas and the acting is better the script is better the, the there's there's tragedy there's momentum the action the flying scenes are incredible i mean it's 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 one of the it's one of the most compelling films i've seen in years and you know it's everything that you go to the movies for that you want to go to the movies for and and that is in depressingly short supply these days and it still proves that Tom Cruise can be bankable <laughs> so so true so Tim what what other film uh, series do you think the second film artistically surpassed the first uh, and I go way back with this kind of stuff so I'm just gonna go ahead and go on yeah, back there right yeah. now I'm gonna go on right back to Superman 2 1980 so Superman great movie love Superman Superman 2 is a better movie. The introduction of General Zod and, 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 uh, and uh, the, 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 the stripping of Superman's powers from him. Oh, man, so, just talk about pathos. Uh, in, in that movie, 1980, and I think, who, who directed that? I think that was, uh, I think it was Irv. Irv Kirshner, Kirshner, Irv Kirshner directed that, mm -hmm. as, opposed to, as opposed to Richard, mm -hmm. uh, directing that first film. So Superman 2, better movie than that first Superman movie, both great movies. And then I'm going to hit you with Aliens. Yeah, yes. yeah. You thought the sequel surpassed the first. It did, and I love Alien. Yeah, but of course yeah. they're different genres, right? Uh, the Alien, uh, sort of a thriller, sci-fi thriller. Aliens. That's really a sci-fi combat war movie. James Cameron, Ridley Scott. Different, same characters, same creatures, and also different a, fe genres a female films. empowerment, and, movie and both that, female yeah. empowerment mm -hmm, movies. Mm -hmm. But but Aliens moves 
twice as fast as Alien is a slow pot boiler of a movie. You're waiting to see what's going on. Aliens, we know what's going on. That alien is going to try to kill them all. Uh, and it, that movie moves in cracks. So I think it's actually a better film. But it, I think that begs the question, like, how do you make a good sequel? And I think if the first film is good, like The Godfather, then you make a second film that's different enough, either structurally or in, in terms of, uh, you know, you bring in you bring in Robert De Niro playing a young Vito Corleone. You bring, you know, you 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 mix it up a little bit so that you can bring something new to the experience, so that people have, you know, don't feel like they're just comparing it to the original. I want to mention also. Uh, Toy Story three, which is all the all the movies in that series are, are pretty They're good. They're all good. They're yeah. all good. But to me, three had this sort of extra sort of um, lump in your throat kind yeah. of thing with yeah. you know uh, your kid growing up and all of that. And and that that to me sort of deepened the franchise in in a particular way. So I think that it's not necessarily just the second one in the series. It can be the third. Did, awesome. Now you you mentioned Godfather. Did you think the second was a better film than the first? I did not. I I can't say that, Larry. But I but I think it was equal, and yeah. it's it's the Which only sequel so, that w- has won the Best Picture Oscar, unless you're counting uh, Lord of the Rings, I suppose. Mm. I, I was just going to say that those Godfather films are both so good that sometimes I forget which moments are in which film. Yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, And they, they almost exist as one right. big movie for me, those two. Yeah. And then we have that third film. You, you were uh, talking about sci-fi with Alien and Aliens. Um, and I want to uh, point out, in the Star Trek film, you know, there was the first feature film, Star Trek, which was a bit bloated and plodding. The mm. second one, Wrath of Khan, yeah. made by the TV division of Paramount, was actually the superior film, so I think, So much for better, much. I thought. And really entertaining with a great performance by Ricardo Montalban, of oh, course. Khan. But also, wasn't uh, yeah. he reprising a character that he From did? From the you TV know, in the series. TV series, so I yeah. think again, like people had a little bit of that embedded in their collective memories. Yeah. And, and from all those years later, and he still looked incredible. <laughs> yes, as like ageless Ricardo Montalban. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. Uh, Lael, others that well, Paddington Two. I want to throw out Paddington Two. Paddington One was really was really pretty entertaining, but Paddington Two was, I have to say, just a perfect movie with a wonderful performance by Hugh Grant and just. Fabulous in every possible way. Charming, entertaining, delightful. Loved it. Mm-hmm. You mentioned about Superman too. You thought was superior. We've had a lot of Batman films over the years. Yeah, interesting. Batman Returns, nineteen ninety two. Michael Keaton again. Tim Burton again. Batman Returns is a better movie than the first Batman. The first Batman is fun. Uh, that wonderful score by Prince and Jack doing the Joker and all that fun movie. Batman Two is probably the first darker Batman. We, we get to the Dark Knight much later. But Batman 2 is a pretty dark film. And Michelle Pfeiffer, who we talked about today, mm-hmm. in that Catwoman uh, outfit, oh my, uh, <laughs> that, that was extraordinary. And, and, and Danny DeVito was a mm-hmm. very scary and sharp penguin, penguin. Yeah. Uh, in, that, in that film as well. So that's a sequel. Hey, Empire Strikes Back. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, this is all, these are important, but that Empire Strikes Back is a better movie than Star Wars. It's a better movie than Star Wars. It just is. What about Dark Knight versus Batman Begins. I I think the the, the Heath Ledger performance really mm. just deepened it and and darkened it as well. It's another you got another me example. I don't I don't personally prefer. I know critically a lot of people feel that Empire Strikes Back is a better film, but mm. for me the the thrill of seeing Episode Four, uh, <laughs> A New Hope, uh, the original Star Wars was you know it's hard to 
hard to, to recapture, recapture that. Yeah. I think that I, I agree with you. I think Empire is the better film, but I think the audience impact mm. of that first one because it was it was so different yet familiar, you know, with what Lucas accomplished with that. That that can't be the same the second time around. Yeah, and you can't have you can't have an original introduction yeah. uh, again. Uh, we, we just had what we think will be the last Halloween movie, but you know who knows really. <laughs> but Halloween two, nineteen eighty one, uh, was an outstanding film. Uh, it it literally picks up at the exact same moment that Halloween ends, and presses forward, and it is every bit as thrilling as the first actual Halloween film. They probably still ended the series <laughs> with that, uh, you know, about right. 40 years ago. Before we break, I'm going to throw another one out there that goes even uh, farther back than yours, Tim. Uh, Bride of Frankenstein, ah. James Whale, who of course did the original. Bride of Frankenstein, Elsa Lanchester as the bride. An even better film, but both excellent. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. We'll continue talking about sequels. And we remember Raquel Welch, who died earlier this week at 82. It's all coming up on Film Week. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. Larry Mantle with critics Tim Cogshell and Leo Lowenstein. With Top Gun Maverick being Oscar-nominated as one of the 10 best picture choices by the Academy, we're using that as Exhibit A for a sequel that far surpassed the original in terms of its artistic execution. It's just a better film in pretty much every way. Um, and we're talking about some other examples of that. Leo, you have some, some others to add to this list. Right. Well, Mad Max Fury Road, I think, is, is an example of a sequel that outshone outshined its original. And that of was course so much fun. Yeah, yeah. So excellent and 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 enhanced in many ways by the technological developments, the performances, and also, of course, Road Warrior being a better film than the original Mad Max yeah, in many yeah. ways. I mean, that's a series that just grew and built upon itself. Um, and, and another action film as well uh, that comes to mind is Terminator 2, I thought was mm. much better than the original Terminator. Uh, a, a terrific performance by Linda Hamilton and added some humor, some some classic moments. You know, it's... it's uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the diminishing returns when you get past two and start working your way into three and four and five and six and, and, and things like that. And you're absolutely right. Um, Road Warrior, um, if you watch the original Road Warrior, the, the Mel, Mel Gibson film, if you watch that film today, you kind of kind of can't get through it. It's kind of tough to get through yeah, that film. Because Mad Max was actually the second one, wasn't it? Uh, it was... It was it was Mad Max, and then it oh, was Mad Road Max Warrior. The, okay. Uh, it, it's what they were. Road Warrior is an action film. Uh, Mad Max was a revenge film, and that that I think is is the difference. And the world the world in Mad Max had not been built yet. Uh, the world by the time you get to Road Warrior, and then, and then obviously all the, the the more recent films, the world has been built for us, so we know what the movie is actually about. You don't really even know what uh, Mad Max is about when you act when you first watch it. It it is amazing though how much that you know the one that came so many years later Fury Road that you meant you know took it and with the additional technology and and all the, the you know the musical choices and everything so refreshed the whole thing. Mm. That's right. Yeah. Here's another example. Um you know uh I, 
in the Rocky in the in in, no in the Rocky franchise. I I loved the first one, but yeah. I remember speaking to director Ryan Coogler, who grew up actually watching Rocky two mm-hmm. with his father and loved that one. Was much more attached to it, and out of that love came his wanting to make Creed. And so there's a franchise that has practically been exhausted, but you know he had he breathed new life into it through his love of a sequel. Itself, yeah, and and Rocky Two is is it, look, I love Rocky. Uh, it, it, it's 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 the quintessential film of that type. But Rocky Two, uh, uh, Carl Weathers, uh, 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 um, oh, um, who is the um, Mr. T? Mr. T. That was Rocky Three. He was in Rocky Three, I think. Oh, I think I, I, in... have I can see, see see what can happen? I, with I, these I, things? I can't. <laughs> well, well there have been so strength. many Rockies. It's hard which to one keep was them Dolph separate. Lundgren? I, oh, I my son him. thinks that 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 was four. My son thinks that's the best one. I don't it, think so at all. It is really but, interesting the way they can all sort of bleed together after yeah. a while. Yes, but, they do. But I remember the one with Mr. T being the the Rocky uh, that I thought was absolutely extraordinary. When Carl Weathers has to become uh, Stallone's boxing coach when when, when Burgess Mayors. That's Rocky too, right? That's so funny. Three, it's so funny. I don't but I'm know. pretty sure yeah. that's in the second film, and it's a better film. Yeah. We turn our attention to Raquel Welch dying at the age of 82. She died after a brief illness, according to her agent, died in Los Angeles, the area where she grew up. And uh, someone who started out modeling, moving into acting. And in fact, the first film where she really came to uh, attention was in Fantastic Voyage. We're going to see things no one has ever seen before. Not just something under a microscope. Think about it. That's the trouble I have. Being shrunk. You may learn to like it. Excuse me. For a nice young lady, you play with the damnedest toys, Miss Peterson. (laughs) That'll teach you where to keep your hand. Now I know. Raquel Welch from 1966's Fantastic Voyage alongside Stephen Boyd. And then, of course, um, she's loaned out and in uh, the U.K. makes One Million Years B.C., where she has only three lines, but becomes uh, a poster icon with the brown uh, doe-skin bikini that she uh, wears as she uh, deals with prehistoric creatures and the like. Went on to a number of significant roles later. And, and Lael, your thoughts about what Raquel Welch represented. Well, she was the, of course, she was the ultimate sex symbol, but she was she was more than that. She was uh, a, a fun, a very funny comedian and uh, could make fun of herself as well, but also could be self-empowering. I remember in um, watching her on the, on the Cher show, singing along, because I'm a woman, with Cher and just giving it, knocking it dead. I also loved her in Three Musketeers. She was the love interest in that. She was delightful, could make fun of herself, but also you know, be quite important in her own way. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are a fella of, of a certain age, my age and your age, Larry, yes. uh, you might remember seeing Raquel Welch uh, in, 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 in a, a very, very old Bewitched episode. <laughs> and you might remember seeing Raquel Welch in a very old episode of McHale's Navy. These episodes, oh I, I literally... I'm trying to picture her in McHale's Navy with she's Ernest, Ernest Borgnine. Uh, it, was, it was wonderful. And I actually remember those episodes with Raquel Welch in them. And you're right, she was so funny, wonderfully sexy. 
sexy. Oh, forget about it. And she wore that sex symbol thing uh, as an empowerment thing. She wore it so well. My fave Raquel Welch movie, though, 100 Rifles, 1972. With Jim Brown? With Jim Brown. Uh, that is one heck of a movie. And, and she's even very, very good. And the movie you can't really make today, not with this title anyway, Mother Jugs and Speed, Peter Gates' film. That's a really good movie about about social structure. She plays a cop in that movie. It's really, really excellent. So, yeah, Fantastic Voyage and all of that. But Raquel Welch made some really heady films about about social issues that she was in uh, back in the day. And it, didn't she have a love scene with Jim Brown and 100 Rifles and 100 that Rifles. at that time was controversial? That was a big, that was a big, big deal. 100 Rifles was about 1969. Yeah, yeah. yeah grow, growing up in La Jolla, so she was a Southern Californian raised here, and um, you know it's, it's interesting because she she also, as you said, seemed to have a sense of humor about her her sex appeal, and a real sense of herself as well. I was reading all the remembrances of her, and the people who worked with her, Lael, really liked. Her. She's a very popular person to work with. Yeah, she was known as someone who was very easy to work with, very easy to get along with, and you know I remember another thing just not that long ago an appearance on Seinfeld I think mm. where she played herself and she gets into like a, a fight with Elaine or Kramer or something like that and she won't move her just, arms yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but she was just you know she she knew that she had this kind of this reputation that preceded her but she allowed herself to lampoon that as well and and I appreciated that very much about her but I have to tell you I did not realize she was Latinx until maybe four or five years ago I did not know she was uh, yeah. I think Bolivia by, by, by birth or something like that. I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. It was, I, I can't recall which of her parents was from uh, Bolivia, but yes, absolutely. All right, we remember Raquel Welch who earlier this week died at the age of 82 and her impact on Hollywood. Thank you both so much. Enjoyed the conversations about sequels and remembering Raquel Welch, our critics this week, Tim Cogshell of Alt Film Guide and Synagogues.com and Leo Lowenstein uh, also joining us here on Film Week on LAist 89.3. We remind you that if you missed any portion of the full hour of the program when it airs Friday or Saturday, it's so easy to hear on your schedule. You can use your smartphone app, the LAist app, or or go to wherever you get your podcasts and listen to Film Week. Subscribe to it. Have a wonderful weekend. Thanks so much from all of us at Film Week. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.